So I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 1. While you're turning there, I, I just want to point out something that should be abundantly obvious to all of us. 2020 has been a year of contrast. And if you don't think it's a year of contrast, just think about the things you were able to do at the beginning of the year that we are no longer able to freely do. Like walk into Chick-fil-A and sit down and eat your meal. Like walk into Walmart and buy some toilet paper without somebody checking off how many you have. The contrast between where we were at the beginning of the year and where we are right now is just absolutely incredible. And we can learn a lot from the contrast. And that's what we should be trying to do is find out what God's trying to show us in these contrasts. So we can learn a lot about what we should appreciate and maybe what we should really need instead of the things that we want. Because we have found ourselves in situations where we're trying to meet our very basic needs rather than all of our desires and everything else that might be hanging out there. We've seen that. And from all that, we should probably be able to examine within our own hearts things that we can be thankful for. It's so easy in a situation like this to, to focus on the things that we don't have. And so doing, just turning around and saying to God, well, I need to have that to be happy. I need to have this to be happy. I'm angry if that doesn't happen, and so on and so forth. And, and it just denies the whole concept that his grace is sufficient. So there are times, and we're being tested on these things, are we not? Our patience is tested. You know, our tolerance is tested. We all have moments that we're probably not at our very best. Amen? I've had quite a few. But we want to be in a position always where we're thanking God in all things. And not saying, your grace is not sufficient. I need more toilet paper. I mean, it gets as humorous as that, doesn't it? So we should be learning what to be thankful for. And, and we should be thankful for the contrast that shows us these things, that reveals these things in our lives. And if you start to think about it, the Bible is a book of contrasts. I mean, they're all over the place. I mean, there's contrast between people. Cain and Abel, right? Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau. Moses and Pharaoh. Contrast. Saul and David. The good kings and the bad things. Adam and Christ. Paul and Peter. The new creation and the new heavens and new earth. The beginning and the end is a contrast. So one contrast that can be really easily overlooked and get lost in the Christmas story, as it were, would be the contrast between two prominent couples. And these may be the two most prominent couples ever to have been created right up there with Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah. So I want to take a look at these two couples this morning. And with Kelly's help, we're going to take a look at the first couple. This is uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. 
Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So as Elizabeth conceives and this blessing falls upon him, upon her and her husband, and uh, they're experiencing something they never thought they would experience. Mary comes to visit. And uh, we'll get into that in just a little bit. But shortly after Mary comes to visit, she leaves after three months. And then we pick up with the story with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke 1, 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. 
And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So Zechariah is a priest. Now, technically, the role of a priest is to be the mediator between man and God. Now, we're not calling the priest a mediator with a capital M. The ultimate mediator is Jesus Christ. But the role that Zechariah played in his first century town was that of a priest. Now, originally, Israel was a theocracy. It was a, a government that was focused on God, governed by God, and people that the, the leaders were religious leaders and leading the people in the way of God by the word of God. And that, that was their guidelines. But by the first century, uh, things had changed. And, of course, the Romans were there. Uh, now they were the political power in, in the area. The priests had become the overseers, the authorities over the spiritual lives of God's people in Palestine. A lot of them priests were in, in the first century were loyal to Rome. People like Caiaphas, and you're familiar with him and the role he plays in the story, Some of those priests had gone so far as to institute daily sacrifices to Caesar in the temple. That's how things had fallen. And generally, the population saw those people as religious authorities, but also saw their flaws and how evil they were. So the general attitude about these priests that were loyal to Rome was that they were traitors to Israel. But they didn't think that about everybody. Some of the priests were good. A lot of them were faithful in their duties, and Zechariah was one of those who was faithful in his duties. Zechariah and Elizabeth were good people. We know they were good people because in verse 6, 
Luke says that they were righteous before God and were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. So even though they were good people, we want to understand the context here because they would have lived the lifestyle of a priest in Palestine in the first century. So while the average citizen struggled to survive, we talked about that last week, Generally, it was work all day so that you could have some food and then go to bed and start it over again the next day. The days were long. People worked hard. Uh, There were taxes that needed to be paid. There were Roman taxes. There was a temple tax. And the priests lived in relative luxury because of the temple tax. The temple tax was there to take care of the priests. There were a lot of them. Um, And we don't want to think too harshly of them. They were thought well of in the community archaeologists' excavations show that their homes were pretty elaborate. They had greeting rooms with mosaic tiles on them. There were large dining rooms. There were elaborate paintings on the walls and sculptors and and designs and lavish decorations. They had fine tableware, great glasses uh, and polished tabletops and very elegant interior furnishings. But as I said, we don't want to think too lowly of them. This was what the culture was. They lived well because the people, because the people respected them. This is how Elizabeth and Zechariah would have lived. The, the priests and those who served in the temple were looked up to, but people knew what was going on and knew, knew who the bad guys were and who the good guys were, kind of like today, right? You don't have to nod on that. So they were a typical, well-to-do family. But just like every other family that ever existed, they had their own struggles. And the struggle for this family was that Elizabeth was barren. She was childless. Now some biblical scholars put Elizabeth somewhere between 60 and 70 years old. And Zechariah, a little bit older than her, We know that they're righteous and blameless. We know that. But they still would have had a little bit of stigma about them. And even if they didn't have a stigma, even if they were well-loved by the community, and I think they were, they would have borne this burden secretly, silently. There would have been unspoken words between them. And maybe late at night they would sit and wonder, as they were trying to fall asleep, why God had not given them this blessing. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a a couple that doesn't have children. In our culture, it's perfectly acceptable. It's fine. There's nothing unbiblical about it. But in that culture, in that culture, it signified that God had not favored them. And as well-liked as they may have been in the community, they still would have carried that burden. So what we find out is that in the first century, just like today, Even the most privileged of couples can have their struggles at times. So other than the children factor, these two people were good folks. They were prosperous. They were godly. They were well-respected. They're working in their calling. But by their advanced age, they would have given up all hope of having children. Uh, Elizabeth would have been physiologically unable to have it. They still enjoyed all the trappings of a lavish lifestyle, but there there was always that that echo in the background. And now, now, 
Now there's hope. There's hope. And the, the hope that they have is that God will be faithful to his word. It's the only hope they have. Think about that as we take a look at our second couple. Our second couple is Joseph and Mary. And this is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So there's a contrast between these two couples. As rich and prosperous as Zachariah and Elizabeth were, Joseph and Mary are poor. And in a difficult situation, what was their life like? Well, Joseph, I just want you to think about this for a second. Joseph was probably 16, maybe 17, maybe as old as 18 years old. His day was started with breakfast, a meal sitting at the table at dawn. 
And then he would go to work at a trade, probably with his father. And, you know, his father was a carpenter. And everything had to be made by hand, including the tools that they used. So he would have to go out and find some wood to make the things that he wanted to make. Then he would have to either make tools that he could form this wood with or maintain the tools. And they were very simple hand tools. And they were constantly needing to be repaired and replaced. And, And then he would take those tools and he would make things. Tables, chairs, a yoke for oxen, uh, the wagons, doors, furnishings, windows, a number of other things. They, they made all of the things that would supply the community with the, th- with the things they need made out of wood. And then he would take them and he would barter them. Now, there was some selling. He had to have some money because he had to pay his Roman taxes. He had to pay his temple tax. But most of his business would be bartering, trading the things he made for things that he needed, maybe for some meat or some vegetables or something. His workday was usually 10 or 12 hours. They would work from dawn until dusk. And, and generally, it was just enough to get by so that he could provide for his family and then start it over again the next day. Mary, Mary had it even more difficult if you take a look at the things she's had to do. She was probably... 13, 14, or maybe as old as 15 years old. So keep in mind what these people that we consider young and inexperienced would have to face. And her day would begin by making that meal that her family would have. And then she would have to make bread. And there would have to be enough bread made over for the entire day and a little for the meal in the morning. She'd serve that meal with maybe a little bit of olive oil, So you'd have the olive oil and the bread, and if it was a good day, there might be some dried fish that somebody had bartered for and put on the table. Then then she would have to go get water. You know, they didn't have indoor plumbing. So she would have to go to wherever the nearest source for water was, probably a well, and draw enough water up from the well and carry it to her house. And there had to be enough to cook the food and to wash things, to wash the utensils, and to take a bath and to do the laundry. And then she would have to locate some wheat somewhere and then grind that in the flour so that she can make the bread with the water that she had accumulated. And then she would also be responsible for collecting firewood. And in the wintertime, they needed firewood for heat. And throughout the entire year, they needed firewood for their cooking. So Mary's days would have been 10 or 12 hours as well. These were hard-working people. And Joseph betrothes himself to Mary, goes across the town, talks to Mary's dad, says, I'd like to have your daughter to be married to, and they would exchange something, some sort of dowry, whatever Joseph was, would have handy or and his family would have, and then he would go back to his father's house and begin preparing a place for Mary to live. So, As hard as they work, all of their hopes and dreams are before them. They live in a decent community. They live with good people. And they're just starting out life together. Meanwhile, Mary's visited by an angel. And and, and this is not good news, folks. (laughs) The angel says, you're pregnant. 
God is giving you a baby, and he's doing it supernaturally. Now, this drops into the middle of Mary's life like an atom bomb. And she's got to tell Joseph. And Mary and Joseph are the only ones that know this must be true. They don't know how the community is going to receive it. Probably not well. And Joseph, when Mary tells him, I mean, we don't have all of the details there, but Joseph clearly loves Mary because he treats her with a modicum of respect. He wants to put her away. That means he wants to go to a priest and say, we're not going to get married. And the priest is going to say, well, why not? And Joseph is going to have to say something about why they're not getting married. But he doesn't want to hurt Mary. So he struggles with this until Joseph is visited by an angel as well. And here's the same thing. They both know the truth. But there's no angel visiting the community around them. There's no host of angels saying, oh, by the way, Mary's going to have the Son of God. So things are complicated. And we heard about the struggles that Zachariah and Elizabeth have, but now Mary and Joseph have incredible struggles, and they're quite a bit younger. And on top of all that, there's a census, and Joseph has to go to his family's hometown, Bethlehem. Now keep in mind, they're young and they're poor. They don't have resources. They can't go off on some odyssey for an indefinite period of time without really struggling over it. They could be stoned when Mary starts showing. And Joseph could be stoned as well for allowing this to happen. So he takes her to Bethlehem. And, and the, journey, the journey is interesting. Travel back then was tough. There were bandits and robbers all over the place. There were four main highways in Jerusalem, one along the Jordan, another one along the coast going north and south, one to the north and one near Jerusalem going east and west. Those were Roman-made highways. They were fairly modern. They were fairly well-patrolled, but getting to the highway could be incredibly dangerous. And you would travel with a caravan. That cost money. It would be foolish to travel by yourself because you're just kind of putting an advertising sign saying, come and rob me. So they would have had to scrape up the funds to join a caravan. They would have gone from Nazareth over towards the Jordan, down the King's Highway, uh, down to Jericho, and then from Jericho to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem, three miles to the south, to Bethlehem. And when they get there, there's no room at the end. Now, those of you who have been with me for a couple of years know what's coming. There was no inn. Bethlehem was too small to have an inn. The word is katalama, and it means guest room. And because Mary and Joseph don't have any money, they're probably not looking for a hotel anyway. They don't have any money to pay for it. And traditionally, what would happen is when, when Joseph got to his family's hometown, he would have gone to his family's house. We talked last week about the, the priority of hospitality. The family would have extended hospitality to Joseph because he's in David's lineage. 
But they would have seen that Mary is obviously pregnant and that these two are not married. So they're relegated, for whatever reason, they're relegated to the stable, which would have been on the ground floor of the house. And the baby, the baby is born in filth and squalor. There was a 60% mortality rate on infants back then. There was a 40% mortality rate on birthing mothers. So having a baby was dangerous and filled with heartbreak. And these two young kids are having a baby in the barn. They put him in a feeding trough. I love the nativity scenes, they're so beautiful. This is a trough that animals ate out of that day. They put them on hay. You ever lay down in hay? <laughs> oh, it looks so beautiful. Ouch, ouch, ouch. The chances of the baby surviving are minimal. And what kind of life is the baby going to have growing up with the whole nation knowing that he's illegitimate. I mean, we hear this later on. The accusation rises up amongst the Pharisees. We know who your father is. Really, what they're saying is you don't have a father. Mary and Joseph have one hope. And their hope is that God is faithful to his word. Isn't that incredible? Look at these two contrasting couples. They've got the same struggle. Both of them struggled with their hopes and their dreams and that seemed to be so far out of reach. Both of them struggled with some trust issues. I mean, we saw some tension between Zachariah and Elizabeth, didn't we? Even the best couples have that, amen? Right? Amen. <laughs> We saw the tension between Mary and Joseph, and they're just getting started. Had trust issues. They both, both couples found themselves in situations beyond their control, bigger than they could imagine, and both ultimately had to depend upon God. Both had only one hope, that God would be faithful to his word. Oh, it's a great story for 2,500 years ago. But look what God did for them. He brought through them the Savior of the world and his only herald. God took their lives and turned them inside out. And not only turned them inside out, then he turned them upside down and just shook them to see what would come falling out. And then he gave them more than they ever could have imagined or dreamed for. And that's what we're celebrating this Friday. The fulfillment of joy beyond measure. The realization of eternal life and happiness. The birth of a redeemer. The birth of the savior of the world. Who can reach down into the hearts of every one of us. No matter what our struggle is. Turn us inside out. Whether we're high class, low class, no class. All classes. Because all classes struggle. Amen. With the same thing. turns us inside out 
it gives us hope. He gives us hope. He's the only one that can take our tattered shamble of a life. He's the only one that can take a year like 2020 or maybe even our entire lives. The only one that can take all this, take all the disappointment, all the heartaches, all the shame, all the fear, all the moments of doubt and darkness and make something so awesomely beautiful that it can take your breath away. Nobody can do that but him. He can take our breath away, bathe us in glory, and bring us into the presence of our Father in heaven for all eternity. So there's really only one contrast we see in the Bible. The contrast between those who believe and those who don't. Those who are saved, if you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have hope. Even when it might seem hopeless. Even when we close a year like this where it just seems to get darker and darker and darker. We have hope. We have light. And we know where our hope lies. For those, for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, you need to think about this. The Bible says if we confess our sins, if we repent, we call him Lord, then we get this hope. We get this eternal life. There's time. This might be your darkest moment. This might be your biggest struggle. It might be God just getting your attention to say, my word says if you trust in me, you'll have eternal life. And then our hope becomes the fact that God is indeed faithful to his word. We've got 4,000 years of history showing us how faithful God is to his word. Amen? Come up here, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that comes in and through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you as, as the world pauses and catches its breath as the awareness that something very special is being observed. We pray, Father, that by the presence and power of your Spirit, you would move among us and through us, that we would become vessels and messengers of that hope, Father, that people would see it on our faces, see it in our lives, and come to want it as well. We pray, Father, that your gospel would rise above all of the muck and mire that's out there, Father, and that the beauty of what you have done through your Son would make itself known. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Kelly and I, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Have a great week. Thank you.